We're going to just turn to God's Word. We are in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, this is sort of the last, I think, in our little series, which we've called Together, what it means to be together as God's people, particularly as we gather on a, something like a Sunday morning type thing. So I'm going to read from verse 26, and it begins, Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize when you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given, one will speak in tongues, and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. No more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak one at a time, and someone must interpret what they say. But if no one is present who can interpret. They must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. Let two or three people prophesy and let the others evaluate what is said. But if someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak, one after the other, so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people, women should be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. They must be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it's improper for women to speak in church meetings. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet, are otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. For if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and in an orderly way. Father, we thank you for your word, sometimes challenging as it may be, and Father, we pray as we just come to, to look at it, to explore it, Lord, that you would, would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just begin by painting the picture of what Paul had heard about the Sunday service in the Corinthian church. The, the meetings were basically just a free-for-all. Many people would give messages in ecstatic tongues at the same time, with very few of them, if any, of them being interpreted. No one understood what was going on. The prophecies often turned into impromptu sermons of varying lengths. Sometimes a new one would start up even before the previous one had finished. And on top of all that, women were shouting out to ask questions or to challenge what was going on. It was just chaos. Not, but not unlike perhaps some of our parliamentary debates in the House of Commons. 
And all that Paul wanted to do was to call them to order. Order! Order! Let me give you some thoughts on this particular passage. First thing is this. The foundational truth that Paul reminds them of and actually is central to everything that Paul says within this chapter is found at the end or the last part of verse 33. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And this peace and this order is is the very character of God. it's, It's shown in the way in which he works. In fact, it's shown in the way in which he has always worked. And you can read about it from the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 to 4, when God brought order out of chaos when he created this world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. But also we see similar things and other examples in Scripture. In the New Testament, when Jesus told the storm to be quiet and still, read about it in Mark chapter 4, verse 39. Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind and the and the. He rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And Paul's point, I think, is obvious. When God's people are meeting together, our gatherings should reflect the character of God. The question is, do they? If you take a moment to think about some of the aspects of God's character, I've already highlighted his order and and peace. And then there is his holiness, his love for the outsider, forgiveness, his patience and his grace. And, And when we meet together on a Sunday morning or in other settings during the week, our church gatherings should should reveal our God and Savior by reflecting his qualities. So when we come to worship, when we pray, when we read his word, when we take communion, when we just have a fellowship together, one with another, is our focus on God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so much so that everything, everything that is done is a reflection and actually reveals who God is. Because that's the way it should be. All that we do should be spirit-led, should be God-centered, should be Christ-glorifying. Or to think about it just another way, as, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I deliver to you as of first importance which what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Listen, it is the gospel who satisfies and who persuades us so that as his church, our total 
commitment should be to the to be transformed into the very likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's only by the amazing power of the Holy Spirit that, our, that, that, that this is ever made possible within our lives. It's only because of Jesus. And we need to keep the gospel centered within our lives. And the outworking of this is that as our churches gather together, they should be reflecting the very character and the very nature of God himself. The second thought I want to pick out from this, and by the way, the fact that God is a God of order, a God of peace, that is the thought I want you to keep with you as we move into these other, other points. The second thing I want to pick up again the guiding principles that we spoke a bit about last week and that Paul emphasizes again here in verse 26. And Paul exhorts the church to pray for, to look for, to, to use gifts that will help other believers. Spiritual gifts are for the strengthening and for the building up of the church. But what does that mean for us practically? Well, we read about in verse 26 and to 28. And there's some guidelines that Paul puts in place here. First of all, for prophecy. Like the other gifts, they need to be ordered so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged, verse 31. And, and Paul puts some safeguards in place. There shouldn't be too many prophecies, verse 29. He says, let two or three people prophesy and let the others evaluate what is being said. The second is keep them short. Bring what you believe God wants you to say. Don't add to it. And for everybody's sake, keep it brief. Thirdly, one at a time. If another prophet is a prophecy, the first speaker should stop. Now, I don't think Paul means that they stop in mid-sentence and then somebody else gets up. I'm, I'm pretty sure that it would be appropriate to quickly finish what is being said before the second person starts. But the principle is simple. Get to the point. Prophecies must, must never become a field for indulging in selfish competition. Rather, it's an exercise of Bible-based selfless encouragement. So what about tongues? Well, when a tongue is spoken out in a gathering, just like in the case of prophecy, there should be no more than two or three, Paul says, and there always should be an interpretation Without an interpretation, a tongue is worthless. Now, I want you to note, it is an interpretation, not a translation. And because of this, actually, it's very possible that more than one person may get an interpretation of even just one tongue. And, and, and while the words may be different, the theme and the message of that interpretation will be very, very similar. Practically, when a tongue is given out, we wait for interpretation to come. Why? So that everybody understands what's going on and that people are strengthened and built up. The third bit of guidelines, Paul says, there should, there is a time for quiet. Now, this applies to the gift of tongues when there's no interpretation coming. But also, let me deal with the very difficult, perhaps controversial, controversial verses that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34, where Paul 
instructs women to remain silent. The temptation to throw a little joke and a smart comment out there is immense, but I'm not going to bother. <laughs> Actually, this isn't quite as, I think, as controversial as you might think at first reading. Let me explain why. You will notice it's written in the context of public evaluation of prophecy. However, it's very clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5 that Paul expects women to pray and to prophesy in church meetings. So he's certainly not forbidding women from speaking in church completely. In chapter 11, he acknowledges the importance of their contribution that women have to make. And, and there is, there's no way that he suddenly changed his mind just two chapters later. So what's actually going on here? Well, as verse 35 suggests, he's actually dealing with a specific group of people who happen to be women who have questions. Actually, I'm, I'm not even sure it's necessarily everything, anything particularly to do with gender. And had men behave, behaved in exactly the same way, Paul would have, I'm pretty sure, offered a very similar rebuke to them. But in the Corinthian church, in this particular setting, it just happens to be women who have been causing the disruption. So he tells them that when you've got, when you're inquiring about something that you just don't understand, you don't just shout out in the middle of the church meeting, in the middle of what's going on. You wait until later. Stay quiet in the church meeting. And if you're married, ask your husband later or talk to somebody else after the service. But don't bring disorder during the church meeting. And then the final bit of guidelines that Paul pops in here is to weigh everything. And this is important. As believers, we have a responsibility to carefully weigh what is being said However, elders have an even greater responsibility in this area. So whether this is a prophecy, a tongue, an interpretation of a tongue, a, a word of knowledge, it must be weighed carefully. Discernment is key for, for orderly worship. Speakers in church meetings are under the authority of the church leadership who in themselves are under apostolic authority and therefore under the authority of Scripture. And everything that is done should be examined with godly discernment. And for this reason, it's really helpful that, that before you bring a contribution on a Sunday morning that, we, that you speak to the person who's anchoring the service. Now, that will nearly always be one of the elders or it could be someone with maybe a, a discerning or a prophetic gift. But it gives just us a chance to weigh up what is being brought. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us, test everything. Hold fast to what is good. There is always the need for discernment. Why? Because God is a God of order. And then just to... I think just to tie everything together, I want to give, just share some thoughts on, on, on worship. One of my most memorable, one of the most memorable sporting events was 
for me anyway, was the London Olympics in 2012, almost certainly because we were able to get tickets to attend. We managed to get tickets to the heat of the athletics, so Usain Bolt run the 200-meter heats. The, you know, even, even though it wasn't the final, the noise and the, the cheering, the atmosphere was just electrifying. See, the thing is, we have been created to be worshipers. But sadly, the best examples of passionate worship is probably not found in our churches. It's probably on the local football grounds or in the, on the music or in the music concert. And whether people admit it or not, we all worship something. Within, within each and every one of us, there's this, this God-given desire because we are made to worship the creator of everything, the one who is king of kings, the one who is Lord over all. But all too often in our broken world, in our sinful lives, we replace our worship of God with, with something that brings us just temporary joy rather than the true joy that is found in Jesus. And, and Jesus wants you to express your appreciation. In fact, God deserves your thankfulness. He deserves your praise. So why, why does God want our praise? Well, John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, he says, we admire people who are secure and who are composed enough that they don't need to shore up their weakness or compensate for their deficiency by, by trying to get compliments. Piper continues, God is not weak and he has no deficiencies for from him and through him and for him are all things, Romans 11 verse 36. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself give everyone life and breath and, and everything else. Acts chapter 17, verse 25. And everything that exists owes its existence to him. And no one can add anything to him which has not already flowed from him. Therefore, God's zeal to seek his own glory and to be praised by men is not because he needs to shore up some weakness or deficiency for, in or of himself. God has everything he needs in himself. And Piper argues that because God is unique and glorious, it is appropriate for him to draw our attention and to seek our praise. For if God should turn away from himself as the source of all joy, he would cease to be God. He would deny the infinite worth of his glory. And if you think about it, what can God give you to enjoy that would prove his love? There's only one possible answer himself. And if he withholds himself from us, no matter what else he gives us, he is not loving. But the thing is, God is loving. He is eternal, omnipotent, omniscient. He is good. He is just. He is holy. He's righteous. He's glorious. There's nothing that is beyond his control. He is faithful and true and, and unchangeable. And, and we as we get to know him better and better, the more we will appreciate him and the more we will meditate upon him and the more our hearts will want to sing 
his praises. We've already heard that already this morning, haven't we? And praise and worship is not, it's not a passive activity. It's, it's active. And you need to engage your minds. So Paul says, when you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation that God has given, one will speak in tongue, another will interpret what is being said. But we certainly need to engage our mind. And listen, there is preparation that goes in to what we do as we gather together. You know, Ruth just didn't turn up two minutes before the start of the meeting and pick up a guitar and decide which song she's going to bring. She'd, she'd pray it into it. She'd, she'd spent some time with God during the week. I mean, this, this talk, this, this sermon just didn't appear on my, on my laptop the minute I opened it up, which it had have been quite handy, wouldn't it? But there's some work and some preparation that goes in behind the scenes to, to this. Listen, we need to engage our minds. However, worship flows from a place of love and of wonder and awe of God. I, I, love, I love running. Most of you know that. And I will sit for a few hours watching a marathon. Now, to other people, that is the most tedious and the most boring thing they would ever want to do. Why would you just want to watch a person running along a road for two and a bit hours? But, but once you've ran a few marathons, once you've spent some time training for them, you begin to appreciate the discipline and, and you gain a respect and an appreciation for what, what some of those elite athletes can do. For too many people... Their praise of God is limited because they have never spent time getting to know him or what he has done. They don't understand the significance of the cross or the victory that was accomplished at the resurrection or how totally lost and wretched we are without Jesus. And when the reality of all that Jesus Christ has done for me goes from my head down to my heart, Will we not respond like Mary did at the empty tomb? She wasn't sort of blasé about Jesus rising. She didn't react with some sort of detachment when the resurrection took place. She was just overwhelmed because Jesus was alive again. And as we become overwhelmed with Jesus... It will change the way in which we live all of our life and the way in which we come into our worship as we gather together. See, these times that we gather together are very special moments of worship and praise. Sometimes we can become a little bit relaxed about them because we can do it so easily because there's nothing stopping us from coming here 
But these are fresh opportunities to get to know God together, to grow in our faith, to declare glorious things about Him and about who He is. And, and, and I believe that the true worship is often birthed in the, the quiet place, is birthed in those times alone with God and within His Word. And, and, and too often our praise of God is limited because we just don't spend enough time with Him in prayer and with His Word to really get to know Him. You know, it's very often from those times, those daily personal times of worship that will fuel our corporate worship. I wonder how many of us come into this place with soft hearts just ready to worship because we have consistently lived in the presence of God during the week. It's from a place of intimacy with Jesus that we'll, we will hear the voice of the Spirit and he is the one who births the contributions of song, of prophecy, of tongues, of interpretations of tongues. You need to position yourself to encounter God. We need him. And I know life is busy for all of us. But also, I know that I'm not going to embarrass them, but the family in this church who probably, whose life is so much busier than mine will ever be because of the demands they have made on them. And yet I know and have seen each time they come, there's a contribution coming because God has been speaking to them because they spent time in the presence of God. I know many of other of you are doing exactly the same thing and God is ministering through you and speaking through you. I know, but listen, I know there's more for me. I know I need to press in deeper into him. You know, it's so important that we learn the signs of his presence. And this comes through knowing the Bible, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and putting faith into action. Listen, you must never think that you are a spectator or that only certain people with unique giftings hear from God. And listen, if you think like that, you just simply disqualify yourself. You remove yourself from active faith and actually from worship. Instead, you need to be filled with the expectation that God, what God has said, my sheep hear my voice. You need to know that the one who gave his life for you, he restored relationships with each and every one of us would like to have communication with you. And faith leads us to lean into his spirit. Or as Samuel the prophet put it, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So how do we worship when we gather together? You know, God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, also mentioned earlier on in our worship. And because we are all different and, and certainly we are a diverse group of people and there should be diversity within our worship, but God wants to rebuild his house, the church, so that we might take pleasure in it and that his name might be glorified. We are the living stones who must shine for Jesus, 
but the house of God should be the very gate of heaven, a place of joy and excitement. And, and some people are very quick to dismiss a joyful, liberated expression of worship as just emotionalism. But true worship in spirit and in truth will affect not just our minds, but will affect our emotions and our hearts. It was Spurgeon who said, I would sooner risk the danger of a tornado of religious excitement than see the air grow stagnant with dead formality. More importantly, God tells us that we should rejoice before him, clap our hands and sing. John Piper, he says in the end, the heart longs not for any of God's good gifts, but for God himself to see him and to know him, to be in his presence is the soul's final feast. Beyond this, there is no quest. Words fail. We can call it pleasure or joy or delight, but these are the weak pointers to the unspeakable experience. One of my favorite stories that highlights this and just makes me, it makes me hungry for more of the spirit comes from the life of, of Wigglesworth. A friend of his, Mr. Roberts, described an afternoon meeting where there were 11 Christian leaders gathered praying with Wigglesworth. Each had prayed when Wigglesworth began to pray, and as he continued slowly, one after the other, they had to leave the room. The power of God filled the room, and they could not remain in such an atmosphere that was just so supercharged with the Spirit of God. Roberts decided that if he ever got the opportunity to pray with Wigglesworth again, he would, he would never leave the room. Again, he writes, during a stay in New Zealand, he got his opportunity and the challenge. A number prayed, and then the old saint began to lift up his voice. And strange as it may seem, people began to leave. A divine influence began to fill the space. The room became holy, and the power of God began to, fit, began to feel like a heavy weight. Determined not to leave, he was the only one left in that room. He hung on, and he hung on until until the pressure became too great and he could stay no longer. He describes, with the floodgates of his soul pouring out a stream of tears and uncontrollable sobbing, he had to get out or die. And a man who knew God as few do was left immersed in an atmosphere in which few people could even breathe. And our longing should be that each time that we gather here, we encounter God's manifest presence. Nothing less will do. We need authentic encounters with the Holy Spirit. We need to encounter the living God and, and, and where lives are drawn to him and, and hearts are changed. We need God and true worship brings us into the very presence of God. The psalmist says, God, you are holy enthroned in the praises of your people. So let's seek after him. He is worthy of all our praise and all of our worship. 
And God is calling us to step out in faith and in the power of his spirit with a whole new level of expectancy. The bottom line is you need the Holy Spirit and so do I. Our lives and our church community should be awash with the Spirit of God. But all too often we settle for less, much less. And I long to see more and more people use their spiritual gifts as, as the power of God is poured out. Listen, he must invade all of our lives and actually all of our communities for the glory and for the honor of his name. Why don't you just stand with me for a moment? We're going to just pray. Let me just sing a little one. Time is nearly gone. But I want to just give a moment. Father in heaven, we, we just thank you for who you are. Just take a moment to reflect on the majesty, the wonder, the holiness, and yet the grace of our Father in heaven. And Lord, I pray that our church would reflect you, Lord God, in our meetings. Lord, may as we gather, as we worship, as we sing, Lord God, may, Lord, you be revealed and your name glorified in all that we do. And Lord, I pray, help each one of us to do our part in this. In Jesus' name, amen.